0: Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I am your host, Brady Huggett, and the guest for today's show is Stanley Crook. Stan is the founder and longtime CEO of Isis Pharmaceuticals, the the flagship antisense company in biotechnology. So uh, I was in the West Coast, in, I was on the West Coast um, in San Francisco for work, and I convinced Stan to, um, to meet me in San Francisco, and we did the interview in a hotel room. So you can hear kind of this creaky Hilton chair that he's sitting in. Um, anyone's life is of interest. If you if you peel back the layers, you're going to find, you know, successes and failures and ups and downs uh, because that's what it is to, to be alive. But it is rare that you will find a background as unique as Stan's. I mean, his, his early years were so outside the realm of biotechnology. It was so far away from a life, an educated life. As he says, he did everything that he could to mess up, and uh, yet he did not. So... Yeah, let's pick the conversation up here where, where Stan and I are talking about San Diego, um, his decades spent there, or how the biotech industry has evolved while he's been there. I'll have more to say later, but for now, listen up. Here's your First Rounders podcast with Stan Crook.
2: Obviously, having academic centers of excellence is, is, is critical as well, and San Diego has that. So. It's just a. Uh, it, it's a. It's a little different. I've been on quite a number of boards of, of companies in San Diego and elsewhere, and you know, and also companies we founded. And it's just uh, it feels a little different to me from San Francisco or Boston.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so you you mentioned you you I guess you were born in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, how did you get your start toward, you know, the life sciences?
2: Uh, well, I really didn't. Uh, um, I was the. Uh, first person in my family to ever graduate from high school um, and you know, I graduated when I was 16 not a good student, terrible student basically didn't go to school but somehow so, got into college I don't know how but I, I thought smart people became engineers so I uh, went in aeronautical engineering initially at Purdue and then uh, uh, um Purdue was in West Lafayette, and my girlfriend at the time was in Indianapolis, who I married. She was already sick, and so I moved back to, uh, to Indianapolis, basically, so I could be near her. Um, and uh, the only sort of trade school in Indianapolis was a pharmacy school, so I went to pharmacy school. I'd grown up working in little drug stores, so it makes ah. sense.
0: So uh, is that what your family did? Your family had a drugstore? No, my... No. Fa- <laughs>
2: I, I don't know much about my family, and so my family didn't do much of anything. Uh, but uh, no, no, I just got a job when I was 11 or 12, working in uh, little teeny... They, they don't, even, I don't I don't think they exist anymore, but there used to be these little corner drugstores. Yeah. And, and uh, started working there and, you know, just had good luck, you know, with bosses that, that were nice, like nice people. Yeah. And uh, then... Uh, um, in pharmacy school I got interested in cancer um, and uh, ultimately ended up at Baylor but it was completely entirely luck
0: totally undeserved all right so I'm going to back you up if, that, if that's okay um, you said you don't you didn't know anything about your family
2: Not much I don't know exactly where or when I was born I don't know my, my, who my father was I know my mother uh, and my stepfather but I more or less left home very early ha huh, so your mother raised you uh, sort of, <laughs> not exactly. I lived with my grandmother and great grandmother, and cousins until I was six or five or six or seven, and then moved back with my uh, mother for a few years.
0: Uh, so this is Indianapolis. Uh-huh. You know, you you see often that people who were in this in this industry had parents who were physicians or parents who were researchers, mm-hmm. and they sort of saw that as a model. You did not have that then.
2: No, uh, I don't. I think I. I didn't go to a dentist until I went to college and they were you were required to go to a dentist. I think I've been to a, a doctor once or twice in my life. Had no idea what doctors did. I didn't know anyone had ever been to college other than teachers who I loathed and they loathed me. Uh.
0: <laughs> Why? Why did you loathe them?
2: <laughs> oh, I... Well, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of sort of animosity about people in power and People have a lot more than you know. It's just sort of that, sort of, Snopes, Faulkner sort of thing of just I don't know. Just, just they were they were authority figures, and I hated authority. I see. And, All right. Uh, and and. Um, and I showed it. (laughs) So they were in a position of power. I earned their enmity, let me just say Ah, that. (laughs) Okay. They were in
0: a position of power you could see it, you could feel it, and you resented it.
2: I didn't like being powerless.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then, at some point, obviously, something clicked for you because you do not get to the level that you got and the education that you got without starting to value education.
2: Uh, Really, it was desperation. Um, I I just knew that I didn't want to be like everybody else that, that I grew up with. I knew I didn't want to end up like my friends were ending
0: up, um, which was how they.
2: Well, most of the people, kids, I, guys I grew up with were either in jail for life or dead, um, and uh, and I, you know, and I and I liked work. I, I everything positive that happened to me, I happened at work. That was a place where, you know, it was things were good. So mostly desperation and and anger um and and just the whole idea of of having no hope, no aspirations i mean poverty is not the loss of money of course it's sad it's it's the loss of dreams it's the absence of hope that's 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 poverty
0: the absence of a real future yeah
2: uh, beyond that it's it it's not so uh, at least from from my perspective it's 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 the inability to even dream you know uh, so but I you know it was just desperation and, 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 and anger I thought I was smarter than anyone else and, and uh, I was damned if I was going to let somebody uh, tell me I wasn't and luckily I did very well on tests and it was only the tests that got me into places certainly not great because I didn't go to school much and, Okay, so to school it's, most of the time
0: is it fair to say that you were a bad kid
2: oh uh, yeah I was a wannabe hoodlum Ah. Yeah, if you're eleven or twelve and you're a hoodlum, you're crazy. You, you, you've had some really bad stuff happen to you. I was a wannabe hoodlum. Uh, you know, uh, d- 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 enough common sense and enough sanity <laughs> to know uh, that this was a stupid idea. Yeah, I was a wannabe hoodlum. So you
0: would hang around the the, the real hoodlums. If yeah, you were. yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I grew up there, yeah. and and, uh, and the first job I had was a place across from the largest. High school in Indiana, maybe the country at the time, which is called Tech High School. It's in the center of Indianapolis, and it was run by, you know, just a really rotten guy. Uh, you know, today, he'd be called well, he's he, he'd be called a lot of names, including pervert. <laughs> and uh, but you know, just stay away from him. But uh, it, it, you know, it was it was it was a crowd of very hard guys who. who you know, stole cars and stole things out of cars and stole motors and stuff like that. And
0: chop shop. Yeah, well,
2: there was plenty of that. I don't know if they called it that, you know, but it was a different time. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, and, and I think when people look back at our history, there'll be two things that they they will they won't be able to understand. The first is how could a civilized country um, let the gun companies uh, arm our inner city children? There were no guns where I grew up. And same for drugs. There just wasn't, so it's I, I think kids who grow up in that environment today have it so much harder because because, the- because you know, you've got guns and, and drugs are a big business and I think it just changed changed everything. So it wasn't it wasn't a I, I was happy every day I, I had a great life, but you know look you know looking back it looks like kind of miserable, but but it you- wasn't nothing. It wasn't anything like it is today.
0: Oh sure, yeah. And so it sounds like your at least your grandparents, uh, no, no, <laughs> they did not. I mean, who was so, was anyone overseeing you at all? No, no.
2: I taught myself to read from comic books that I stole, and uh, and uh, no, I don't recall ever seeing a book in our house. No, all right. Uh, and, I lived, and my grandmother and great grandmother were nice people. They were just beaten into into misery. They just, you know, generations of poverty. and They just. They weren't bad people. They just they didn't have any, any life.
0: They had know? no opportunities. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I don't know what their opportunities were when they were younger, but I think they were just beaten down. Yeah. So they weren't bad people.
0: So, it, it, are you the only one just to quote unquote make it out from that situation?
2: Oh, uh, I think in probably in that generation, I, I haven't really connected with any of my family members in many, many, many years. So, uh, I think the. Other, you know, other generations since me have have gone on and done moved much up, better. Yeah. But uh, of of my generation, sure, I think so.
0: So just one thing, and then, so do do you know anything about your mother? I mean, was she? Um, I, I don't know. Did she grow up in that area herself? Did she?
2: Um... Yeah, she grew up in Indianapolis. I think um, the my family moved to Kansas. Just in time for the dust bowl, that was the sort of thing that happened to people like yep. them. Uh, came back to Indianapolis. Um, th- um, I really don't know the history. I think my mother had me when she was fifteen or so, and then left. And and so I was taking, you know, sort of standard, sort of, the next <laughs> sort time, of history, yeah. taking care of my by my grandmother and great grandmother, and then uh, a little later in my life, I moved back with her.
0: Your your mother? Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are you you're not in touch? No, no. Do you know when she passed? Uh, no, no. Okay, I left
2: home a long time ago, and there you were some good reasons, and I've never gone back.
0: Okay. Um, so at some point, something clicks for you. Like now, you begin to value education, right? You go to Purdue. medical sort
2: of engineering, which was fun, um, and then uh, and then I went to pharmacy school and at uh, Butler, right? At Butler, uh, and um, um, but w- w- was a lousy student. Because um, i i you know, I wasn't a very good student I didn't take school very seriously, and I worked fifty hours a week or so so uh it, you know I was fairly busy sure and then, and then I had to party and goof around uh so so I was busy um and
0: your your girlfriend is a butler as well
2: no no she uh she, she was two years younger than I, but i was i i started college i think when I was sixteen so i was you know a little farther along than sure. she was in yeah. school
0: oh i see okay right
2: and uh, but anyway so then we
0: uh what happened
2: i went through pharmacy school and
0: right, so you, you get a, a master's in
2: pharmacy no you get a it's it in those days it was a five-year degree today it's a six-year or seven-year degree and uh, that that you know you can be a pharmacist and uh, so i'm was now working in drug stores and became a tiny owner of a couple of three drug stores by the time I was
0: 20 or so. Ah, you actually were a pharmacist then? Oh, yeah. yeah, ah, yeah okay. I
2: was a pharmacist for two years. I know uh, actually, longer than that two years. And while I did my, I, I managed a drug store that I was a part owner in and then did a master's. And again, it just I got asked to go to graduate school um, in a total fluke. Uh, by, by whom? The dean. It's. it's not, I know it's an unbelievable story. I always missed the first week of each semester. Uh, it became a tradition. R- you know, why? Why did you? Just because I never you had refused. the money. Oh. I was working to get the damned uh, tuition money. Right. And uh, so then it became a tradition because then I got started making more money and I had the money to pay tuition, but I didn't go. And as and there was just a lot of animosity to the to the administration of school, and so the. I got elected as senior class officer over the objections of the professors. And that for that reason, and that reason only, I happened to be in the dean's office. And uh, the dean asked me what I was going to do, and I'd gotten into law school somehow. I really don't know how. Uh, I mean,
0: you must have been doing well on the tests.
2: I did. I, I blew the tests away.
0: All right. So but, then this speaks to a, a core intelligence of yours that must be present. Yeah. You, you just don't get into college with if, you're, if you have terrible high school grades. You don't get into grad school if you have terrible college grades unless you're blowing the test out of the water i think so yeah
2: yeah i i reckon i mean they didn't give you the scores back then but but um uh you know the dean said well you know i know you're not a good student but everyone knows you're the smartest person here why don't you go to graduate school okay i'll go
0: and but were you at, at that point? You sort of decided you were a pharmacist, and that seems like success, given yeah, the way a that you a big were brought success up. for me. Yeah,
2: and I, but and you know, I was I was already beginning, you know, to, my, to own a little bit. That's astonishing, right? I mean, I, yeah, a big success. But uh, uh, I was interested, to, you know. I don't know. I just kept going. And so I was at one time in law school. At the same time, I was in doing my master's while I was managing a drugstore. <laughs> So but, uh, you, were,
0: you were accepted to law school, start, started law started school. Started law school for
2: a week and then dropped out.
0: Ah, and then dean, the dean asked you to go, this is debate. Uh, no,
2: he asked, me to, he asked me before law school started. Would but, you go to And then school? I went to, so I was trying to figure out. Uh, and for no particular reason, I decided I didn't want to go to law. And then um, um, applied to a bunch of medical schools and graduate schools. Uh Actually, my wife filled the applications out.
0: So you're married at this point?
2: Oh, uh, we got married when I was 19. and She was 17. We had to wait until she was old enough to be married. But.
0: To be legal, right. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, so then all the way through the rest of your college, she's with you. Oh, yeah, sure. Huh. sure. Okay. okay. Yeah. And did she work?
2: Oh, yeah. She was a technician in a lab. Huh. Uh, and uh, uh, I applied to some schools, got rejected by almost all of them, got, ex- got accepted to Baylor which I never dreamt I'd get into, and the, uh, the, the fellow who, who was chairman of pharmacology, a guy named Harris Bush, a, a, a great scientist, um, you know, said, you know, come down and i went down mostly just to see the astrodome i didn't know there were i didn't know, i didn't know there were fellowships i didn't know anything about grad school I knew nothing and he and and he, and you know he was interested in cancer and that was interesting to me and um, do, you, do you know why that was interesting to you um, i remember precisely uh, there was a lecture in biochemistry by one of the five worst teachers in the history of the world and And uh, he was talking about DNA, which was a new topic to me and and I, and I, I had this thought that that when cells you know lice and degrade, DNA would break up, and that it might be taken up by cells and lead to cancer. I mean, pretty smart
0: for those days. But, yeah.
2: And um, got interested in that. I mean,
0: you had that thought. Uh, just initially in your brain you thought, I wonder if maybe that's the cause of cancer. Uh, I
2: was absolutely sure it had to be part of it. Uh, and anyway, um, Harris, uh, you know, said, well look, you'll get a fellowship. Thought, Holy cow, I get money to go to school. Now school made sense. Right. I was being paid to go to school. And graduate school medical school is work. You know, you're, you're really doing things. Right. Yeah. And then I became I a very good, good student. And uh,
0: uh, so that's the. I mean, at, when you reached grad school, you thought, well, okay, you know, this is now. I'm really going to put. You're going to put your teeth into it.
2: I didn't think. I just sort of did. I just it 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 was not like school. It was. It was,
0: it was like, like work, a, work, which you already enjoy. And I'm good at work. Yeah. I like to work. Yeah.
2: And 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 I'm, you know, I've been taking care of myself since I was old enough ever since I can remember, so taking care of other people was fairly straightforward. So, uh, and then Harris uh, introduced me to science and medicine and gave me lots of chances I didn't deserve, and, you know, I was on the faculty while I was actually in medical school, again, thanks to Harris, and Harris became the closest thing to a a father I've had, And and his wife Rose were, I mean, they made a giant difference in my life they did they
0: took right under their wing they took you in
2: well yeah I mean
0: I mean it sounds like
2: Baylor was a very tough place it was run by DeBakey who you know was quite an amazing character but about as tough as anybody and Harris was a a really tough cookie I I mean when I arrived Harris took one graduate student at a time one PhD student and the previous Ph.D. student was just finishing. And and the story goes, I wasn't there, but the story goes that Harris got so mad at him, told him he was worthless and didn't deserve an office and bodily drug his desk out in the hall. When I arrived, he was still sitting in the hall at his desk. So I wouldn't want you to think of Harris as, as warm and fuzzy. Uh, well, he believed but, in you, I guess I'll say. But he... and. and you know, I was probably the first guy he'd ever met as tough as he was. Yeah, <laughs> and so yes, we hit it off, and uh, and uh, and he, you know, he he introduced me to to, um, you know, all of the things other than, I suppose, I got introduced to love a little earlier, but um, everything else that matters, Harris introduced me to. And and we became very very close. I
0: mean, what close, do you mean by that? You, you do you mean um, I don't know, culture, or world of, world events, or?
2: Well, you know, I always read a lot, so uh-huh. I knew a lot. Um, uh, somehow, I always knew history and uh, knew new things, and was, you know, just I knew. Um, but Harris introduced me to science, and he introduced me to medicine, and he introduced me to to demanding more of myself and demanding more of others and he introduced me to focused energy committed to a purpose as opposed to just all the energy i had and and he introduced me to um the you know power science what what it feels like to be you know pushing at the edge um uh, and uh, he introduced me to rna which is a big deal for me yep. Renee is a big deal for me um, and he um, introduced me to intellectual life that, that really was the first moment that I understood what it meant to be an intellectual and so if I mean truly it was it opened the world in a way that had not been apparent to me until I met Harrison was in that lab, it was a big lab, before labs, big labs were a bit normal, mm-hmm. I think there were 35 postdocs and then me as a graduate student, it was incredibly hard working, night and day, and, which I loved, uh, and, and had a lot of neat, a lot of nifty people from all over the world, and Baylor was kind of a really pretty cool medical school, and and, and, and you got a lot of patient experience very early, and that was cool. Uh, and but, so
0: it introduced me to all that. But you were in school, you are in medical school, and mm-hmm. this being in this lab, did that switch you over from thinking, well, I'm going to be a physician, to I'm actually going to do research for...
2: Uh, yeah, uh, it, 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 not exactly. I just sort of went. <laughs> and I discovered what science really was, and I discovered what medicine really was, and decided that I wanted to do both, and ended up you know, being able to do both, which which is astonishingly lucky. Yeah. So I am absolutely the luckiest person you've ever met. I did everything I could possibly do to make my life a complete failure. And yet? And yet. <laughs>
0: uh, it was not, yeah.
2: It, it didn't turn out that way. And certainly certainly, I didn't, you know, if I'd gone to school, uh, I'd have known that there were loans and and... And scholarships I thought a guidance counselor was the person that kicked you out of school (laughs) they were an enemy so I mean if it it really is to me as I reflect on my life um, an amazing um, journey that um, that I don't deserve
0: well well the deserving thing well I'll leave that alone but so okay you, you leave Baylor Right, and then you start your career. Right? Well, this is... not
2: exactly. <laughs> I did my MD, PhD, and house staff training there, and um, uh, and I was we we were the lab was really focused on small molecular nuclear RNA, which was brand new then. There were still people who thought it was they were degradation products, mm-hmm. and so we were the first lab to sequence small molecular nuclear RNA. So i was very interested in RNA. Uh, but I was on a Hemank service, and a young man was transferred by his local physician, at, uh, thinking he had lymphoma. He had uh, masses in his abdomen, and 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 obviously, he, he, well, it's not obvious. He didn't have the lymphoma. What he had it was a disseminated testicle cancer, and um, um, uh, and I, I had to best relationship with him, so I was the one who had told tell him he was going to be dead in six months, or, or didn't have to, I was the one who got to, uh-huh. it's a special privilege to be able to, even if it's bad news, it's a privilege to be able to do that, and and there was this experimental drug called bleomycin and, uh, that we offered him, and it was such a fascinating drug, crazy structure. Odd amino acids and strange sugars, L talose, and so on, and it had this bizarre mechanism. This was before restriction endonucleases were discovered and cleave DNA, and mm-hmm. and it had amazing side effects that were not like any other cytotoxic, pulmonary fibrosis, and so on. So I got interested in it and sort of scrapped the res- research I was doing and started working on bleomycin, and um, and really got interested in bleomycin. And one of the analogs to bleomycin, basically. So uh, I called Bristol up, which was the company that had it, and asked them if they had a job. Harris nearly killed me because, you know, I was already an assistant professor at probably 20 publications before I finished my residency. Oh, uh, and he
0: was so mad at me. Well, he wanted you to stay on Oh, he was, uh, you know, I was,
2: you know, ticketed to... Yep. Uh, and uh, also I, uh, my, my first wife was now very sick and I needed to make more money that also was a factor but anyway I was I went there thinking they had an anti-cancer program it turns out they didn't um, they'd it had been defunded by the NCI and the drugs that William they had just gotten by it, having a relationship with the Japanese uh, company that had discovered it Um And I also discovered that there was no molecular biology in being practiced in Syracuse. And so that led me to, uh, you know, sort of build the cancer program at Bristol. Well, they hired you then, yeah. Yeah, they hired me. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was, I mean, people like me didn't go to the industry in those days. Uh, Everybody wanted me. Oh, interesting. Uh, But, uh, and then, so, uh, and so I started a lab called Bristol Baylor, which was uh, built a big lab at Baylor trained a bunch of graduate students so I was full time faculty at Baylor at the same time I was building the cancer program um, I think trained for five or six PhDs uh, sorry so
0: you, they hired you but you said well I'm going to stay here around no, Baylor." no to I went to,
2: went to Syracuse realized that they didn't have any molecular biology I needed to do molecular biology ah. so convinced my boss to give me $40,000 total $40,000 and started a lab at Baylor, and in five years, I think we published 100 papers, and I trained six PhD students, and uh, and I, it was it had tremendous NIH funding. I was the only person in industry who had NIH grants. So I and uh, I was a full-time faculty member there. So I I, I think I gave the most lectures in pharmacology mm-hmm. for 20 years of anyone on the faculty. Uh, and in the meantime, I built the cancer business at Bristol, or led the building of the cancer business and that sounds straightforward now but in those days there were no cancer programs and the conventional wisdom was you couldn't make money in cancer and it sounds unbelievable <laughs> it but sound that's unbelievable, what it was. Yeah. Merck was giving their anti-cancer drugs away and so we you know then we got cisplatinum and you know I was still seeing patients too at upstate New York and you know I mean Cisplatin, bleomycin, doxorubicin wasn't my creation; it was Larry Einhorn's. But that combination you know, cured testicle cancer, yeah. and so that was kind of neat. Would, and you know, to be seeing young men with testicle cancer and have it go from you're you're, you're, you're dying dead, to yeah no you will be dead in six months to we can cure you in in, in a few in three years. Really, quite an amazing event we put uh, nine drugs on the market nine anti-cancer but it was very different a lot easier back then uh and you know filled the pipeline for Bristol so and then you know I was recruited to to be head of R&D Smith-Kline, at several right. companies and 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 ultimately decided to go to Smith Cline I
0: wondered okay so that's how you got to Smith Cline and yeah, you were yeah. there for Eight years, nine, nine years, nine years huh? yeah how did that go? So that's that's another move for you? To, Physically. To Philadelphia. Right, yeah.
2: Well, it was fabulous. I mean, I was, what, 35, 36.
0: No kids yet? Oh, I had a son. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So um, you, the family was fine with moving up to Philly?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, my, my, my first wife died uh, two years, three years, uh, five years after we moved to uh, Philadelphia. She been declining sick for many
0: years so then you're you're a single father uh-huh. yeah
2: um uh, uh, Evan was 14 when she died and um uh, but anyway uh you know I was hired to, to to bring the R&D organization into the 20th century and uh, I had to make a lot of changes and we did make a lot of changes and I think did a lot of good things but also you know didn't succeed as much as I had hoped and Uh, Regret leaving as early as I did, but yeah, you know, because I didn't finish it. But then George Post, who who I don't know if you know George. I don't. George took over after me. Well, there was a merger with Beecham, and then another merger with Glaxo. um, But eventually, George took over my spot. George was the person who I brought in, came with me, worked in research. So it was a great experience. I was. You know, incredibly young to have such responsibility, and uh, and learned a ton, and I think you know did a lot of good things. And, you're
0: overseeing all of the R and D, right? I mean, that's so that I when I, I saw that, and I thought, well, that's probably really helped you um, understand how you're going to plot your own company. Absolutely, right?
2: yeah. I mean, uh, you know, most there aren't that many people who found biotech companies who have been heads of R and D. They're you know in various places, but. And so you know, it was an incredible experience to be 35, 36, 37, 38, 40, running you know, what was what the maybe third or fourth largest R&D organization in the industry yeah. at the time. And I had gotten recruited to you know run different biotech companies over the years, but had not been interested because I didn't think they were financeable. And um, that's why I, I, I believe the most important innovation in biotech was financing <laughs> you know who would have ever thought that there, there would be around. a group of investors who want to manage a portfolio of R&D investments and the financing but you know by the time you know 1989 rolled around it was pretty clear that biotech was financeable and and then I got interested in Anasense and it became very, very clear to me that there was no way I'm, I was going to be able to make the 20, 25-year commitment to AnnaSense even as head of R&D in a big company, so I started Isis. And I was also convinced at the time that the fully integrated pharmaceutical company model was wrong, and I wanted to run an experiment in that. And I, I felt that, um, that that the culture that I was trying to create was I was never going to get done uh, in, in a large environment.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
2: You know, ISIS was an opportunity for me to take what I had learned, focus it to RNA, where I always thought RNA is a much better place to make drugs and proteins. Way better. It's, it's, it's water, it's simpler, it's straightforward. And and you know, run the experiment on the technology and run the experiment simultaneously on the on the business model and, and the culture. And that you know, I, that's the way I look at ISIS It's just three very large scale very expensive, <laughs> um, long-term experiments. Well,
0: let's so, how, so let's get some of the details here. How did you? Wh- where did the technology come from? Wh- where did you? How did you decide that San Diego was going to be the place? How did you get your first funding?
2: Well, uh, the Anasazi, you know, Paul Anasazi coined the term in seventy-eight. And, and of course it didn't refer at all to mechanism, all it did was say you use an oligonucleotide to bind to an RNA so mm-hmm. antisense is a broad in my view, is a very broad definition there are multiple mechanisms under it and um, uh, we had this uh, seminar series that we had started it was a very successful seminar series and one year we had Miller and Joe come and talk and they were some of the earlier practitioners of antisense. and so I had a, my own lab, a big lab Um, um, while I was running R&D. And so we started looking at Anasense in my lab, and it was pretty clear, pretty quick, that it didn't work, and that none of the experiments that claimed anisense activity were right, and that all the experiments were terribly flawed. But still, I was very attracted to the idea. So we were working on that, and um, a friend of mine, Mark Skoletsky who was at the time COO of Biogen and you know later went on to
1: re-
2: build Enzatech mm-hmm. and some other companies. But he'd been the finance person at Bristol when I went to Bristol as my first job as a kid. Um, he, he was responsible for trying to corral spending in R&D when I arrived. So we, anyway, we became friends. And he introduced me to a guy named Chris Gabrielli, who was at Bessemer, and Chris became one of my closest long-term friends, and um, Bessemer became the first investor in ISIS. And I think we had the biggest first round in history at the time, it's laughable, 5.2 million dollars, <laughs> you know, now no, no one would even talk yeah. to you for 5.2 million dollars. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, Chris stayed on the board for a very long time until he ran for governor in in Massachusetts. Um, and, uh, n- another wonderful, a wonderful man that I I really admire. And so uh, Chris sort of led me by, by the hand, you know, to go out and get the first round. And you know, we went public in two years. So, but I've been I, but public
0: since 1991. How did you decide to set it in San Diego? Is that where within... so I wanted to live? Ah, so you said uh, you, I'm leaving Pharma behind, and I'm yeah. going there to start this company. Yeah, yeah, and you brought people with you, and
2: yeah, uh, you know, I had quite a few people who had been my students and and, and the like, and so a number of them came. They helped me found it. Uh, you know, Dave Ecker, who who created Ibis and that we sold to Abbott um, and uh, Frank Bennett and uh, Brett Monia, and of course my second wife, Roseanne. Who is really the person who built the cardiovascular program at, at ISIS? Um, you know, quite a few people came, and, um, and <clears throat> we got underway, and you know, got a lot of deals done in the first year. You know, you, you know the thing that you have to understand about technology goes in ways, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. the neat thing about it that I've discovered is there are early adopters, there are middle adopters, there are late adopters, and they're different. And they vary. You, you never know where the early adopters are going to come from. It will, I can tell you the characteristics of companies that are early adopters, but you know we got a whole bunch of those early adopter deals done. Siba was the largest deal of its at in, 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 in its time. So we got a lot of deals done, and <clears> then <throat> we went public, and you know we then we per- persevered the technology through all the ups and downs, and you know it's, it looked like it was a good thing to do.
0: Yeah, let's talk about so. I mean, forever, ISIS and antisense have been linked hand-in-hand, hand. and your name as well, right? Mm-hmm. Those three things. And the industry has had its up and downs. The technology has. There's been... I mean, I remember uh, you had a drug fail for Crohn's in phase three, Alkaforcin, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Affinitech failed in phase three. Both were surprises and, and and hurt the hurt the stock for sure. And the technology. And the technology, right. Because I think Affinitec, there was a lot of hope around that one, especially. Um and now you have two drugs approved but let's talk about how you dealt with those setbacks both for the company you know, as a manager and also for the investors
2: well I think we were different from the very beginning from other there were a lot of other companies that started Gilead Genta Triplex um, um, uh, they were Ribozyme. but uh, first of all I understood drugs I'm a pharmacologist and I understood RNA and I think to do Especially to be this, the pioneer, you really needed somebody who understood what drug discovery and development was about, needed pharmacology, but you had to bring RNA. And I was committed to the technology. And, and by that, and, and I want to be real clear about that, uh, I, I don't think religious fervor has any place in science or, or business. It was data based. Every day we looked at the data and decided whether. We had encountered a flaw that we couldn't fix. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I knew what to do. I, I knew the things that needed to be sorted out. I knew to, I, I had to build a big medicinal chemistry program because there was no medicinal chemistry. I knew that I had to understand their pharmacokinetic characteristics and toxicologic characteristics of molecular mechanisms. And, and so we've invested in core innocence research from day one because it's a nascent technology. And you see still, even companies i founded people who can't get it through their heads that a nascent technology needs an investment in the technology. You can't just take what's there. You have to continue to make mm-hmm. it better. You know, we're we're making incredible improvements today. It's, it's, it's the most dynamic it's ever been. And so I think that commitment to answer the questions, not hide from them, and the commitment to do basic research, it, it's not right for every company. It's it's not right for every purpose, but it's an essential element of what we had to do, especially because Andersons didn't have the benefit of the high-powered labs in academia like SIRNA and because mm-hmm. yeah. the biology was boring. Uh, boring is good for pharmacologists, but not so good for cell biologists. So uh, we had a commitment to the technology that was data-based, and we were committed to advancing the technology. and We maintained our core innocence research every step of the way Um, and even when we had to close you know days I thought we weren't going to be able to fund the place we continued to advance the technology because that was required and so you know when we ran into difficulties what what I did first of all you you build credibility daily Leadership is about um, humility in front of the task you have. And we tackled the hardest task, and you have to be humbled in front of that. And drug development is a hard task. I mean, there are only two hard things I've ever found in my life. Only two. Both of them dismissed by people who've never done them. One is parenting. Zero-sum game. The best you can do is come out even uh, and not be blamed for too much. And then the other is drug development. It was really incredibly hard. So we are tackling a technology that was totally oh, a blank piece of paper and drug development. Mm-hmm. So it was obvious we were going to fail. We were going to have lots of failures. But you you, you, know, you, you, you build credibility and, and, and leadership boils down to telling the truth always telling the truth to the people who, whose lives they put a part of their life in your hands so you're responsible for for them and so the most important thing I had going for me when we ran into those failures is one that we had advanced technology and I knew we could solve the problems and all the senior people with me knew and we went through and we carefully looked at all the data and we, did, and we were ready to stand up and say it isn't going to work or at least it can't work with the technology as it is. But we never encountered that. So I knew I could solve it. And then a second, people knew I told the truth. Yeah. And and, and so both internally and externally, I think we tried to deal with the truth, and we disappointed people terribly. And, and then, you know, you, you manage your way through whatever you have to do, if you have to do layoffs. or but you did, like, right? Finitech, I think, oh yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, 40% of the company or something. And, that, um, and, and, and then the Lilly deal was coming, came to an end and Lilly had caught it was this big deal that made us get way big. And, um, and, and you know, after Forson, those were really dark days. And, uh, and I told the company when I stood up, as I don't know if I can finance the company. I'm going to do my best, but I don't know. Um, but luckily, the the, the uh, genomic, the genomic <laughs> boom. Yeah, Okay, it, yeah, that is perfect timing for you. Yeah, and so it, that saved us. So um, first, we had a database commitment, and I knew that the problems were soluble. And, uh, and I knew that this was a drug failure, not a technology, not purely a technology yeah. failure. And second, I think I had, um, you know, a, a really strong board that was committed to me and committed to the technology, not for the right reasons, not me as a person, but me for what I was trying to do. And then we had a strong team that was committed, and and people in the company I think knew told I knew that I told them the truth, and and so you, you work your way through those hard times. And, and, and this is the thing that's been a little hard for me to teach the guys who work for me is as soon as you get through that then you have to generate a new dream people live for dreams mm-hmm. and, and people like us have to dream that's that. There is nothing else to go to work for when, when, you're, when, you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you when you're do the things we do. It's a dream, right? So you have to give people, then you have to give them a, a, another galvanic vision of, you know, here's where we are, this is where we can be, and this is what we've got to do to get there. And it can't be pie in the sky. It has to be, here's where we are, here's, here's the truth of where we are, here's where I hope we can get, and here are the five steps I'm going to take tomorrow to get us there. And then you, you lead people through that. Uh, and so, then you go out and raise money in whatever form whatever way you can and you know we've done every kind of deal and raised money at a, every kind of valuation that's possible um, and and you live with the overhang the other thing is when you disappoint people that that stays with you and you know it, you mean it's as, a, still, as a leader that stays with you it does yeah um, and it's uh, it's painful you know because you're disappointing people and and you know you could change directions and license in a i could i feel i could do that you know in my sleep yeah. right license in a nucleoside analog and make an AIDS drug but you know how do you justify that well the only way you can justify it is is that what you're trying to accomplish will make people more money later on but in truth the real justification is a, this is a very special industry and it has an overriding value that's independent of all that and that's called patience. And I knew patience would benefit a lot more if I could I could continue. And it was that that I mean, that's the sustaining part. It's that I thought I was doing what was right for patience. But it was really hard. And it you know, it's still you know, those disappointments still, you know, still bother me a lot. And and they they, you know, I think are still a part of overhanging our stock and still a part of on Wall Street and you read you know hear things people say and they're terrible things and so on and it bothers you, I mean, what there's no way around it such it as? hurts oh you're crazy to continue innocence it will never work uh, you must be lying about the data. I mean we went, we went many years when, when we'd say we're making this progress and people just look at me and you know I could just tell them that they, they thought I'm just making it up and um,
0: well, so let's for, for, for listeners, right? The new dream then would have been vitravine, would have been uh, well, uh,
2: well, when by the time a finitac and uh, and Alka had, had failed, we had created second generation innocents. and that was you know that was the key step. And so the dream was second generation fixes all those problems. We have a new because it's they're better drugs and they can be administered. Weekly subcutaneously, we can go into cardiovascular and metabolic, where we can see where, where where phase two results will be dispositive. We don't have we're not stuck just in cancer, where you never know, or in inflammatory disease, where again it's very hard to know. And so we've got the technology, we've solved the problems, we have a plan. We just need to go out and raise some money, and 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 we'll continue to advance the technology um, and and um, and what we're doing is worth the effort and so I mean I mean, what else would you how else could you possibly convince people to stay and exactly. do exactly yeah and, That's... And, and I don't mean that everybody stayed there were people who who uh, left and there were casualties along the way people get tired and you know when you go through you know ten, we went through 10 or 12 years where we were really in a bunker and that you know taken a while to lead us out of that bunker mentality. And that really wore on people. And so there were good people who just wore out. It's the only industry where failure is is the normal event. It's guaranteed, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the surest bet you can make is this drug will fail. Yeah. And the even sure bet is this new technology will fail. That is the smart money. So short those stocks. Yeah. And, and they still do.
0: <laughs> so, but you, you, the outcome here is that you are responsible. Isis is responsible for the first antisense drug to be approved, and then followed up with the first systemic antisense drug to be approved. I mean, the the first one. Well, it seemed like there was still delivery issues for antisense. Uh, you tackle the eye; that isn't a problem um, now. And there's a systemic drug approved.
2: Well, that was strategy. We 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 picked. We were going to do two local first because we didn't know anything. I thought I could predict how they would behave pharmacokinetically and toxicologically, but we didn't know, and it was too risky. So, uh, you know, we, we, we then we had a herpes labialis drug, and yeah. we had a, 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 a vitrovine. Uh, we had a wart drug, too, a general wart, that, that I was sure would work, because I, I assumed just the pro inflammatory effects of the first generation would fix it. And we d- didn't do anything for warts. Uh, And then, once we had that experience, we would move to cancer and and severe inflammation where where side effect tolerance would be relatively high. And once we had second-generation drugs, we would move into uh, areas where safety was more paramount. And it's been interesting. Many, many companies have followed that sort of logic. I think we were the first to try to do that. And... um, um, and, 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 you know, I think right now, I think our Phase three drugs are all looking great. I think they are all going to make it. I think SMN is a tremendously important advance that's going to, you know, we have to prove it, but I think it's going to fundamentally alter the course of SMA, which is amazing for me to have had bleomycin and cisplatinum in the early part of my mm. career, and SMN, you know, toward the end. It's really, really something. And... Uh, and, and even alica fortune is selling in europe on a name patient named dr basis as an enema so um, it's come a long way and feels it feels a lot better today than it did when people of course, no, i was yeah. crazy of course
0: no so the the i mean I remember the stock being it I, i'm Three, you know, three dollars. I think you're yep. at fifty now. The, the the Well,
2: yeah. I don't know why we're going down. We've only put out great news. So, but who knows? Well,
0: not the market's not. a little little frothy. We'll we'll say that. But the 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 company is valued at what over six billion dollars. I mean, it yep. has been a long road, and it's yes. nice to see some some validation now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know because those two drugs that you dig it on the market, I think they were financially maybe not quite what you, you'd hoped.
2: Well, we don't know about
0: Canamro yet.
2: It's certainly, I've been very disappointed with what, what's happened so far, but. You know, this is the Genzyme model. They, they 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 won't put a large sales... They let it sort of grow. Yeah. So I think we won't know what Canamro will do for another year or two. Um,
0: but your pipeline's very deep.
2: Very deep and very exciting and very innovative. Um, First-in-class drugs. And, you know, the ApoC3 is tremendously... The whole lipid portfolio is really, really exciting. Not, not just Canamro, but the triglyceride drug, the ApoA drug... And then, andrew, we'd like three, they're all incredible. The new chemistry, both C at the uh, 2,5 and and Leica, really give us another. Well, if you combine them, you get a hundredfold increase in potency, which takes it down to a milligram to three milligrams a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should have one of those in our in our pipeline next year. Um, and so, the pipeline's exciting, uh, the advanced drugs are tremendous. Um, you know, we can do. We, we now can be strategic in the deals we do. We don't. We only. We don't do deals just for money anymore. Um, Factor 11 is an amazingly important drug. I think it's fundamentally changing the way uh, people think about th- treating thromboembolic disease. I mean, any company would be glad to have one of those. <laughs> right. And so that's that. You know, I think <clears throat> any other company with those all of, all of those assets. Uh, plus TTR, you'll probably be valued more, um, and, and I think that's some of our history playing in there. And uh, uh, but in the end, uh, yes, I'm responsible for the stock price, but I'm more responsible for the patients. Sure. So yeah. that's what that's what's going to drive this.
0: You know, we've talked before. We worked on that paper together, and, and yeah, I know yeah, that yeah. You, you take um, pri- pride in your your managing skills. Mm-hmm. Um, well,
2: uh, I, I I don't know if I take I could do a lot better. Um, but I I I've also been leading people for you know now most of my life, and and I think in, I've gotten better at it.
0: In what ways could you could you do it better? Do you think? I all, mean, you, all, you...
2: all my failures are always the same. Uh, 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 yeah. To really do well in life, I think you need to be an active learner. Some people need to be taught. I'm much too big a pain to be taught anything. I have to learn, and then there are active. Then there are learners, but active learners. Sit back after an event's over and ask, "What just happened? What did I do to make it happen? How did I do? What did I do to make it better?" And then, abstract to the generic properties. And so you know my my failures all my life have been exactly the same classes of mistakes. I'm intemperate, I'm intolerant, and I'm impatient uh learning to control my temper is still a a a, a, a work in progress
0: a, a daily a daily event
2: yeah uh, I hope it's not daily, but <laughs> we, we but can. but you know i i I have learned that uh, I use hard edge words that sometimes I shouldn't. And I'm impatience is a virtue as long as it doesn't control you. Right, right. Um, Impatience just means you don't like the way things are and you want to change them fast. Right. That's a good thing unless it controls you. And so, the things I've gotten better at are um, mostly limiting some of the activities that detracted from the positive leadership skills uh, i mean you have to be ready to be critical and demanding and and tell people when they haven't succeeded and yeah people at isis know uh, when i'm not happy but there's a difference between letting people know that they have disappointed and and losing your temper
0: so how do you let them know when you're not happy you messed up. <laughs> I mean, you pull them aside and say, look, that was a mistake. Uh, we won't do that again. Well,
2: the core of the company is is Thursday morning data club and program reviews. And, and, and the core of that is interrogative environment. Science isn't done until it's queried. And so everybody at ISIS is tough enough to live through really intense but positive interrogative interactions. Mm-hmm. There's a way of asking a question that can be positive, that is, you're wanting to know and have you thought about this, and there's also a way of asking a question which can be hurtful and, and make somebody feel stupid. And when I, when I go home at night and want to bang my head against the wall, which I do, um, it's because I've made somebody feel stupid unnecessarily. So everybody at ISIS is tough enough to live in that environment, and so they are used to being told when they do well, and I'm, I really am good at telling people when we've succeeded in celebrating those successes because they're hard to come by, and they're also and 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 they're perfectly. They understand and they value that more because they know if I don't think it's gone well, they'll hear it. And that's, you know, uh, here here are the things that I don't think you did. That you, here's what you didn't think about. I expect more than a. That, than that out of you, I know you're capable of more than that. And I want to see it next time. That's very different from making somebody feel stupid. So you're, you just, I, I just tell people the truth, <laughs> and and most days I do it in a way that's supportive. And the times when I do it, when I am not as supportive as I should be, I regret. You regret it. And yeah. then I go in the next day and. Tell everybody that I abused. That I'm really, really sorry. And, <laughs> Start and, and, over. And thanks for putting up with with me. And I'll try to do better tomorrow. Yeah.
0: There's nothing like I'm sorry. You um you, you mentioned your second wife. Did you have kids with her as well? No. No. So you have one, Evan. One. Yeah. Uh, so this sort of goes back to be, he's been raised in an environment completely the opposite of yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do how do you feel about that? I mean, I feel
2: wonderful. Um, it's amazing. You know to. So my life has exceeded everything I knew how to dream of. I mean, I didn't know that people lived in houses. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I mean, remember where did first... You... Uh, downtown Indianapolis. Not not Bedford-Stuyvesant, but it was an ugly place. And you, Wait, you're saying you did not live in a house when you grew up? I lived in, well, uh, when I, the first part of my life I lived in a tar paper shack, and then I lived in a uh, house with my grandmother, great-grandmother, and two cousins that uh, had a Living room that was probably eight by twelve. I mean, we didn't we didn't have a we had a toilet inside toilet, but yeah. we didn't have a sh- bathtub or shower. Yeah. And I slept on the floor. Um, and then when and, and lived in there were a lot of these divided houses, four or five different things that I lived in with my mother and stepfather. And so I remember the first time. I got out of the center of Indianapolis and you know what I realize now were lower middle class track homes I thought they were mansions Yeah. and so to have and, and to have stumbled into science and medicine as a way of life as, 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 as defining who I am um, uh, is just an astonishing story uh, I, I'm, I, I really marvel at it and it would be one thing if I had done the things that people who start like I do do, you know, like be a good student and, you know, you know, get a scholarship but I did everything possible you name it, I did it and, to make my life worse so to have that And to be able to reflect on the fact that my life has exceeded anything I knew to dream about. And then to be able to give my son, you know, um, I still have a lot of animosity toward rich people. (laughs) I don't like, uh, sort of like, uh, what's his name, who was it? Garacho Marx who said any club would have me, I don't want to belong to (laughs) Uh, so, you know, and and I, I really am disappointed that I sent my son to a private school, uh, uh, but he had a lot of issues and he needed a private school. And um, and so to be able to pass that on and, uh, you know, have my granddaughter already have an endowment and, you know, and, and uh, you know, to... So, yeah, it's I mean, an extraordinarily wonderful feeling. For you're me.
0: saying it feels very odd, but, but good.
2: Oh, oh uh, it's great. <laughs> it, it feels strange, but it's great. It's a lot better to be wealthy than to be poor yeah. let me just say that I think, I <laughs> I've tried anyone... both I've tried both and, and if at all possible be Go born to it. a wealthy parent right. that would be my advice my right. single piece of advice for you
0: <laughs> I mean you said that you, you somehow still feel animosity towards rich people but I think from the outside most people would feel that you are rich now. yeah I mean, yeah if...
2: yeah I am rich I, I know that um, and I feel guilty about it a, a bit um, and you know uh, it's why I've never been willing to play golf I just can't bring myself to go out with the rich people and play golf, and, and um, uh, so I understand it's it's a bit psychotic. But I mean, if you think about my history, you could imagine I get it. Yeah, I, I get should it. be a little uh, psychotic, um, so I don't play golf. <laughs> you know, <laughs> big deal, right? Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I live uh, beyond any recognition of what I might have lived like and to be able to pass that on and um, see my son do well and see my granddaughter do well is um, well it's wonderful yeah it's wonderful
0: uh, one, one thing so if you do retire someday stand yeah
2: you, it's hard to imagine
0: but do you think someone else could run Isis
2: yeah uh, it's not a I haven't succeeded if, if Isis is not a, a, um, an independent of me agency. Absolutely, that's a failure. Uh, It is not my goal, it has never been my goal to build a company that depends on me. Um, And so I've worked very hard to have a succession plan. It's not a perfect succession plan today. Um, And I'm getting it ready. You know, we talk about it all the time. We have a lot of conversations about leadership in the organization and so on. And, you know, companies. You know, getting I'm getting it ready and the company's getting ready um, um, but I feel I have a ton of energy I've never felt better and I've never done better science and I've never been a better leader I'm learning every day um, and so it won't be for me I unless my health changes that I leave it will be for the company that that I'll feel that there's somebody who's ready to it needs me to step aside right and then i got to figure out what I'm going to do um, uh, um, you know, it's been too long since I've seen patients so I wouldn't be, well, you, wouldn't be
0: right you're not golfing, I know
2: that And I'm not going to golf <laughs> um, so I, I'll have to figure something out because I'm a worker, that's what yeah. I do, I work yeah. I work uh, and, and, and the work I know and the work I do best is science and medicine and drug development so i got to figure out something there Thanks. I
0: really uh, appreciate you coming in. Okay. Bye. You. So there you go. First Rounders Podcast with Stan Crook. I want to thank Stan for um, putting in the effort to meet me in San Francisco and also so for being so forthright. It made for a really good talk. Uh, and when people are honest and are willing to open up, you get a good podcast. It's true. Thanks to the listeners, of course. Thanks to the Midwest Quiet for use of their music in this podcast. I can also tell you that I am recording this outro in our new, one of our two podcast studios in our new offices, Nature Has Moved. We are now at the southern tip of Manhattan. It is a huge upgrade. The old interrogation room is gone. Thanks for listening. Uh, I will talk to you later. Goodbye.